0: Dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for um, the people in Holy Scripture and the way that you worked through their lives. And we trust that you are working through our lives and that you are present to us just as you are present to them. So we ask now, Lord, work through this time. Um, Work through your Holy Scripture as we examine it in more depth. Give us an eye um, toward what you would have us do, toward how you would have us live, toward what it means to follow you, we ask. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, if you've been following around uh, along, this is actually part six, sort of of six, sort of. But we don't put it in the purple sheet because I don't want you to feel like, well, I didn't go to any of the other ones. Can I go to this one? Always, always come each one is standalone but in October I was looking at three different portraits of Old Testament women and in um, November I've been looking at three portraits of New Testament women and I was drawn to this because as um, you know leading in women's ministry very often the women in the, of the Bible are put forward as basically how to do or do what you should do as a, how to be a good woman, how to be a good Christian woman and it usually involves a checklist. You know, based on what the person in the story is doing or not doing. That's not always the most helpful thing, is it? Um, rather, uh, in looking again at um, some of the women of the Old Testament, we looked at Sarah first, then we looked at um, Rachel and Leah together in one week, and then we looked at Hannah, and looking at them, we saw faith. We saw striving for the promises and striving um, to... Um, obtain God's promises to his chosen people and you see that with Rachel and Leah that they are both seeking after the desires of their hearts and um, you see what happens when they don't obtain the desires of their hearts and how the Lord reaches out to them and ministers to them in the midst of suffering so we see grace extended to Sarah that she who is barren bore a child. We see grace extended to Rachel and Leah, um, even in the midst of their sorrow and their suffering. They each have a gift from the Lord. Um, and then we saw also with Hannah, Hannah was a woman of great prayer. She too was barren, and the Lord extended grace to her, not only in bringing her a child, but also in. A allowing her to be the mother of this great prophet who would bring Israel back to its knees, back to repentance, and back to a life of holiness in worship. And so you see then Hannah's prayer echoed by Mary. And Mary was the first of the New Testament women that we looked at. So we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then last week we looked at the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And this week we're looking at Joanna. One of the interesting things about these three um, New Testament women is that they kind of arbitrarily... Sort of the. If I had to think about themes, I wasn't thinking about this intentionally. I was just drawn to these different women. The first three were all dealt with barrenness on some level. The second three, and this is the last of the second three, are disciples in some way of Jesus. So I said about Mary. One of the things about Mary is, um, as Jesus's mother, she really was the first disciple disciple excuse me when she said to the angel let it be unto me according to the word of the lord behold the handmaiden of the lord Um, basically this this news would transform her life would put her in danger even of being not just persecuted um, but also even in danger very real danger of dying and she had faith that god in his goodness Um, was doing something far bigger than just herself. And you see that in her prayer, in her Magnificat, that she is giving thanks to God, and she sees, she knows that this child would be the Christ. She knows that her baby, um, Jesus, would be the one to save his people and beyond, to fulfill the promise to Abraham that um, the offspring of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. So you see Mary has this faith. She undergoes suffering. She believes, and her proximity to Jesus is so close, and that's what I closed with, was just as a, as a mother, and I said this, that there is this proximity um, to your child as a mother that goes all the way back to being in the, having the child in the womb, that there are, every woman that has born children has cells and DNA from the children that she's carried in her bloodstream, scientifically. Isn't that amazing that um, our bodies are created in such a way as this? You can't get any closer than having the cells of another human being in your body. And that is so close. Mary was so close to Jesus, so close to her creator. Um, And there is that closeness to Jesus that's made possible through his death and resurrection. And that we as followers of Jesus, we are close to Jesus, just like Mary was close to Jesus. She is the first disciple, the first one to believe in him. So then, looking on, I would say... We looked at the Samaritan woman at the well, and she was known by Jesus. Remember that Jesus looked at her, saw her, knew not just, um, he knew the outward circumstances of her life. He knew, he discerned prophetically, he knew, because he's God, he knew that she had been married five times, and that the man that she was going to go home and bring to Jesus was not her husband. He knew that, he saw that, he saw her suffering, he saw her sin, he saw even inside her, saw the thoughts and intentions of her heart. And you see this, she understands this, because when she goes and proclaims what has happened to her, to the rest of the villagers, she says, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Which is kind of an exaggeration. He didn't tell her everything he ever did, but she knows that he knows her. He knows her, he sees her, he loves her, and he does not judge her. He brings her in. He talks to her about God. He extends to her living water through him. So she, too, is a disciple of Jesus. She is known by Jesus, and she becomes an evangelist, spreading the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for her. So today, we're looking at a third woman of the New Testament. Has anyone ever heard of Joanna? Have you ever heard of Joanna? She is so she's mentioned twice, maybe three times. We're going to talk about it in Scripture, and it's all in the Gospel of Luke. Twice she's mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll talk about perhaps she's also mentioned in the Book of Romans as well. But let's take a look first at what discipleship entails, and then we'll be able to say, well, is Joanna a disciple of Jesus, or wh- wh- what is she? Who is she? So discipleship—the very word discipleship—comes um, means. Um, understanding, so that's the plural for disciples, Um, basically means learning. Do you see how that word, mathetai, is like mathematics? Greek is behind Latin, and we get a lot of our words from Latin, right? So mathematics involves learning. And the the word for disciple in the Greek is a learner. Remember um, that the learners, those who learned from the rabbis, would sit at the feet of the rabbis. And the idea was that they would absorb all of their teaching. They would repeat it back to them. They would memorize it. They would internalize it. And the idea behind that internalization was that one day they too would then be uh, imparting that same knowledge, that same instruction to someone after them who would sit at their feet. So disciples are learners first and foremost. They learn from Jesus. They um, understand what he's saying on one level, although we do also see the flip theme, especially in Mark's gospel, the disciples are like, we don't know what you're talking about. Or in John's gospel, we hear them say, yeah, we we have no idea what you mean by this. Could you speak to us plainly? So there is some understanding, but there's some misunderstanding as well. And they're working through this. The only way to work through that is to be around Jesus and to um, ask for more understanding. And then I'm going to show that they're teaching and doing as well. That they're not just sitting at the feet of Jesus, but he's also going to send them out and train them to um, lead and to bring healing and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So a couple of verses, first um, from Matthew 5 and then from Matthew chapter 28, just to show about this understanding and this um, teaching and doing. Does anyone want to read um, Matthew chapter 5? verse 19. From here, if you could see it. Anyone with their glasses? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's during the Sermon on the Mount Jesus is talking. He's you know, explain, you know, explaining that one of the aspects of discipleship, one of the aspects of following Jesus, involves obeying him, obeying the commandments <coughs> of God, and teaching others about how to obey them. And we'll talk about that some more in a little bit. Um, anybody want to read chapter um, 28, verses 18 through 20? And this is at the end of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus had died and been raised, And he is um, appearing to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. And this is what he commands them to do. I'll read it. Great. Can you see it all right behind me? Yes. Okay. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. (coughs) Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see that teaching and doing in there, that disciples are meant to make more disciples? Um, He's saying this to his disciples, and he's saying, go and make disciples. And part of that making disciples involves teaching and teaching about obedience, which involves doing, right? So, um, So discipleship involves understanding, teaching, doing, Does anybody want to read these couple of verses from Luke's Gospel? These are, in Luke's Gospel, you see twice that Jesus sends out those who are with him. And we're going to talk about these couple of different groups. First, he sends out the apostles. And in the Gospels, when the word apostles is used, we're talking specifically about those 12 chosen by Jesus to be leaders over the rest of the disciples, those who would become the church. Anybody want to read Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, and then 6? He brings the 12 together gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everything. Thank you, Stuart. So that's the 12 being commissioned, sent out during Jesus' lifetime, during his ministry. How about Luke chapter 10? This, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And He said to them, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest." You get even that sense of evangelism with the harvest—that the fruit is ripe, that there are people who are longing and hungering mm-hmm. to hear about God and to hear about Jesus. And these 72 are um, more broadly disciples. They're not the apostles, but their apostles, they're apostles. Um, in addition to the apostles, they are sent out. So they're more basically disciples, those following Jesus, spending time with him during his earthly ministry. And he sends them out to practice doing this kind of teaching and healing and leading um, and spreading the good news about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And now we go um, what, he, what he has come to do. Okay, so discipleship, I said discipleship was um, understanding, teaching, and doing. Discipleship is also, involves some measure of suffering, doesn't it? And we see this in Mark's gospel. There is a question of doubt, uncertainty. And even some awe, some fear at what Jesus is doing. Fear of the Lord is struck into their hearts when they see all these miracles. They say, "Surely, like the like the centurion, surely this must be the Son of God." Something different is going on in Jesus. And there's this awe and fear as they see that. And then there's also, and so these are some more negative qualities. Uh, discipleship is not all um, roses and kittens. There's also some suffering entailed in discipleship. That when we follow Jesus, uh, just as those first disciples followed Jesus, um, we, we, we end up saying no to our sinful flesh. We end up saying no to things of the world. We end up saying no to our own desires by putting Jesus first, by putting God's commandments first. <coughs> we end up um, having to say no to other things. There's a priority, and the Lord is the priority. Um, and so that involves a little bit of conflict in our lives. So you see some of this, um, first of all, this doubt in a um, in misunderstanding in what Jesus is saying. You see it especially in Mark's Gospel. Remember, even the, the, the leader of the leaders... So the apostles are the leaders of all the disciples. And the leader of the apostles throughout Mark's gospel, especially, is Peter. And Remember, Peter um, pro- proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And then he turns around and he rebukes Jesus for um, prophesying about his own death. He says, no, 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 no. you're not going to die. You're the king. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. So you see that even Peter, the leader of the leaders, doesn't get it sometimes. And you see that a lot throughout the gospels especially in Mark and in John's Gospel. So here Mark is telling us they didn't get it. Does someone want to read from chapter 9? They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They don't understand what he's talking about sometimes. They don't understand his predictions of his own death. They very often don't get the parables and have to say, what does that mean? Now come on, now that you've told it to the crowd, come back here and tell us disciples, really what are you talking about? Because we don't get it. Um, so there is this misunderstanding. There is, But that's part of learning, isn't it? Part of learning is having your understanding be transformed. In, in order for it to be transformed, you have to say, I don't understand, before you can begin to understand. So they don't understand the saying, and they're afraid to ask him. And even then, this prediction of Jesus' passion shows us what it means to follow Jesus, that as we are following Jesus, we are called to be like him. And part of being like him will involve suffering. We should not be surprised when we suffer in this life, and especially when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. And as you know, we probably, we don't suffer nearly as much as others in the world. I was so pleased with Matt's um, announcement about these pins um, to help us remember those who are suffering right now in the world because they believe in Jesus. It is real. People are dying because they believe in Jesus. It is not a surprise. Um, It is part of being a disciple. So there is doubt, fear, and suffering. And we see this um, in Jesus' words about this kind of suffering. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These are hard words. And I'm going to keep putting them up there. Sorry. We'll look at a lot of these hard words before we look at how the Lord empowers us in this. Um, But that is a hard word. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any questions before I keep going? I'm gonna keep talking. Just gonna keep talking. Anyone want to comment on any of those either understanding and learning and teaching and doing? And then the flip side, this sort of negative side of misunderstanding and fear on some level and doubt and struggle and suffering. Okay. Really? One last chance. Okay. Discipleship <laughs> also <laughs> in what's that? I said after class, I'm gonna ask you. About yeah 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 we'll talk yeah. <laughs> um, dis- discipleship involves also service and here in Matthew 23 um, Jesus talks about service He remember when the disciples um, it's James and John the sons of Zebedee the, the sons of thunder and their mother wants them to have the places of honor and Jesus starts to talk about what it means to have honor what it means to be great in the kingdom of God in the company of his disciples that the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Service is a, an integral part of discipleship. Okay. This is one of my favorite ones that no one really ever talks about. Discipleship involves being members of Jesus' new family. It's not an interesting thought. Jesus says... To his disciples, a hard word about their own families. Someone want to read from Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life? Tough word. Mm-hmm. Someone want to read the next one? Also a tough word. Can you see it? Go for it. No, right? No, if it, that was sorry, I put you on the spot. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This doesn't sound very Christian of Jesus, does it? We're taught to um, love our neighbors as ourselves, to um, to be, have Christian families where we love and serve each other. And here he's saying, forsake your family. Leave your homes. Um, hate is a very strong word. What does that mean? Hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about a reordering of priorities for those who would follow him. That Jesus is first, and following Jesus is first, the rest will come. When Jesus is first, only then can we truly love and serve our family members in the best way, in a godly way. Um, when Jesus is first, he alone then occupies that first place of priority, that first place in our hearts so that um, we serve Him first and foremost. Um, We are uh, attached to His precepts over any other thing. We think about Him, think about how to um, serve Him and love Him and follow Him rather than to serve and love and follow ourselves. Or even, um, it's very nice to put someone else in that place and to think that we're still being noble. I do everything, everything I do, I do for my children. Everything I do, I do for my husband. Everything I do, I do for my wife. Yes, but after Jesus because you can only truly do right by them if you're following Jesus and he's first. And your fulfillment is coming from him because when it's not coming from him, then there's too much burden placed on these other human beings who are imperfect and fallible who are in your lives. No one person can fulfill all of our um, vast interpersonal, emotional, relational needs. No one person can do that except Jesus. And so those needs are first met and fulfilled in Jesus. And then we can come to each other in need and also with something to give as well. And there is less of a stress and less of a burden on our other relationships. So he's really, when he uses this strong language, he's trying to reprioritize the lives of his disciples. Um, He's saying something so extreme to get them to wake up and think differently about their lives. So there is this sense in which, the family is um, is in the background, but there's a different family that these disciples are called to be a part of. There's a different community that comes first. Amber, um, yeah. please. Down. But taking a back seat and hate, there's a big... Yeah, I mean, he Jesus says mean, a lot of stuff. Why hyperbole? I mean, just really, it's not to be me, meant literally. Right. Right. Well, it, he is talking about. I mean, uh, there are people. Again, to go to the persecuted church, there's an amazing website that I look at a lot. That um, if I, I try to not look at it too much because it'll get me too depressed. But it does have some things about it. You know, for example, um, especially in the Muslim world, when individuals become Christians, their family, their family is, is obligated by Muslim law to turn them in so that they would either be converted back to Islam or executed. I mean, there is this sense in which for a Muslim converting to Christianity today, they have to choose Christ over their family entirely um, because the pressures of the family would keep them from following Christ. It's either or for them. And so in some ways, it is an either or um, for some people. And, and Jesus is talking too. They left, they literally, these disciples left everything at home. Left and went and followed him. And so that word hate, it is strong, but it's a teaching device. You know, and he's not saying, you no, know, really hate them. He wouldn't say that, would he? Oh. No. He's saying, no, really, you, you have to be so able to detach that so that I'm first. It's really a detachment that he's talking about when they talk about that. Hate. It's not negative passion towards them. It's detachment, you know, in a holy way. Does that help? Thank you for jumping in. What You're going to push website? back some more. It's good. Yeah. What is the website? Oh, it's called Voice of the Martyrs. There's some weird stuff on there too, but they have a lot of updates about um, people in um, in all parts of the world right now who are in prison for their faith or undergoing persecution or. Meetings mm. or things like that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting resource. They're on Facebook. You can like them and follow them. <laughs> um, everything is on Facebook. Yeah. But, so in this, yeah. apps, in this um, detachment from our biological family and putting Jesus first, we also receive another family. And this is interesting, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8. Then Jesus' mothers and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus too is saying my family is first the family of God and then also, yes, my biological family. But he's saying, no, my family is right here. And he was pointing to the disciples around him. And this is a little clue for later. He didn't say my brothers are here. Do you imagine him surrounded by all men? Because he wasn't. We're going to find out more about that in a little bit. He's saying, my mother and my brothers are here. There were women in that group as he was saying, this is my new family. My disciples are my new family. The church is my new family. Um, Just a little example of this, too. When I moved here two years ago, my family was not happy. I mean, they were happy, but they were not happy. All of my, now it's 11, but my 10 nieces and nephews, or it was nine on my way, not happy. You know, they would have liked to have had Auntie Deborah in, in the North for a long, long time. And I would have liked that too. But the first thing, the first and foremost thing, the most important thing is following the Lord. How could I say no to what an amazing calling, what an incredible opportunity to get to be a part of following Jesus in this way. And they understand that. Even though they don't like it, they understand that. Okay, discipleship is also, we talked about learning. We talked about um some of the flip side of that suffering that sometimes entails uh, is involved in being a disciple. We talked about service. We talked about a new family is involved in being a disciple of Jesus. And finally, being a disciple of Jesus involves being with Jesus. There's this, um, remember the... Um, Let's read Matthew 4 first. This is the classic calling of um, the first and foremost apostle, the leader of the apostles and the leader of the disciples as well. Um, Someone want to read from Matthew 4, beginning at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. There's a command to follow Jesus. I know it's warm in here. There's also the the fishers of men. They will become fishers of men. They will become leaders even as they follow Jesus. Um, And this command to follow Jesus involves literally dropping what they're doing, getting up, and walking with Jesus where he's going next. Do you see that Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee? How do you think they got around in that day and age? Mostly, it was by walking. We very rarely see them on uh, beasts. The only time is the triumphal entry when Jesus is riding on the donkey. But That's a very specific time. Only rich people rode on donkeys. There was lots of walking. And walking is so good for you. They were probably in really good shape. Um, <laughs> I'd love to walk. I know. A- What's that? Their feet were worn out. I know they probably ran, wore through those sandals that we, you know, you see all these people that don't have the athletic gear that we have, and they're involved in a lot of walking, and they're actually fine. Like in Africa, they walk a lot; and they don't have the same kind of injuries that we have from it. It's kind of interesting to think about. But so, walking, following Jesus involves walking with him, walking behind him, walking in his footsteps. And there's a couple things about this I'd say. First of all. Um, it involves imitating Jesus. And secondly, it involves going where Jesus goes. So um, first of all, that imitation of Jesus, there's, now, p- please prepare yourself for going from the sublime to the, or to the ridiculous. Hopefully scripture, hopefully this has been sublime just because it's scripture. But now we're going to go ridiculous. If you've ever seen any of the Mel Brooks films, uh, I know, I did it, I went there. Have you seen Young Frankenstein? We used to see this, uh, yeah. So do you remember when there's a hunchback who goes to the door. They're at the door. Gene Wilder's at the door. The hunchback goes to the door to open the door to admit them into the horrible mansion, the you know, scary mansion. And he, he goes to the door and he opens the door and then he, you know, somehow they, you know, introduce themselves. I can't remember that part. But this has lived on in latent family lore is the joke that we always say over and over again. And he says, oh, walk this way. And then he turns around and he walks with his hunchback. <laughs> yeah. And Gene Wilder, Walks with the hunchback. He walks. He walks. He imitates him. He follows him, but he also imitates him. The hunchback was saying, "Come into the walk this way. Come into this room." And instead, Gene Wilder thinks, "Okay, you want me to walk with the hunch, huh? All right, I'll do that. Sure, sure, sure." Playing along, um, there's this imitation. We're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We're called to imitate him in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his compassion for those in need, in his mercy that he has on those in need. The second thing about following Jesus and walking behind Jesus, and I think about this with a jungle. Like if we were following, trying to follow Jesus in the midst of a jungle um, and there was no path, no way to get through, we have a place on Cape Cod where we go and there are lots of paths and um, it's inevitable that the one time I'm there a year, we also have to put in sweat equity into this place on Cape Cod. There are a lot of us and I'm almost never there. So the guilt makes me, all right, better work. Here I am. I'm going to paint. I'm going to mow the lawn. I'm going to do all this stuff. One of the things is path maintenance. We have all of these little trails and um, someone's got to keep them walkable by clipping all of the um, overgrowth from around them and spraying all the poison ivy and making sure that the, um, the really hardcore cousins who like to walk barefoot foot on the paths don't get poison ivy but that's anyway so, um, so in the, but I imagine that here is Jesus going through this jungle if we were following Jesus through a jungle he is there in the front hacking away at all of the things that b- would bar our way um, he is the one who makes the path through what is unpassable so that we can then follow in his footsteps and follow him and isn't that what he does through his own death for us Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, he says this about himself. He goes to prepare a place for us so that where he is, there we may also be. So part of following Jesus means taking that way, walking that way, walking behind him in imitation. But the only way we can do that is as we walk behind him in his death. As we say, let your death be for me. Because you are going before me to prepare a place, you are hacking away at the obstacles that would keep me from fellowship with God, that would keep me from relationship with God as an unholy person in um, relation to a holy God. Jesus is there by the blood of his death preparing a way, moving the obstacles out of the way so that we might be in fellowship with God the Father because of him. So he is the way, the truth, and the life Following him involves imitation. It involves saying, yes, let your death be for me. Um, Let your death pave the way for me back into relationship with the Father. And then it also involves bringing others along in the way. Saying, come, come and follow Jesus. So being with Jesus involves following him. Being with Jesus means being with him as companions and friends on the road. That he is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and as we walk through this life, we know that he is present with us even in the midst of trouble, trial, sorrow, grief, and all kinds of suffering. We are not alone in that, but Jesus who has paved the way is also along with us on the way. He knows the way, and he has been through all that suffering and then some more so, and he understands what it is that we are going through. So this third aspect of being with Jesus involves part of this come and be a fish, come along and follow Jesus. It involves being fishers of men. That we, as we follow Jesus, we are witnesses to his ministry. As we read Scripture, we witness it. We hear about it. We read about it, in, including his and specifically his death and resurrection. And we bear witness um, to others of what God has done for us in Jesus. We um, you don't have to get up here. And do that, to do that. Um, bearing witness to who Jesus is involves just proc- saying, Yes, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me. It involves that very basic profession of faith. That is bearing witness. That is saying, he died and he rose for me. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I will live eternally because of Jesus. And so those first disciples were indeed, they were companions on the road. They walked from Galilee to Jerusalem and back and forth and back and forth. And they also witnessed his death and resurrection. Well, there were 12 apostles that he called, and Luke talks about the 12 apostles. As I said, the 12 apostles were the leaders of the leaders, the leaders of the disciples, chosen specifically, symbolically, 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 because in Jesus there is a new Israel, a new people of God. Through faith in him, we are united as a new people of God. But it also says that there were disciples, that Jesus would just pick up, that would just drop everything and follow him, who would come after he had healed them and follow him. Um, And so um, the crowd was not necessarily those who were following him. When you read about the crowd in the Gospels, the crowd are those who are intrigued and want to come and hear him. But the disciples are those who have left everything, who have had their lives touched by Jesus, and who follow him on the road. We know there are at least 70 of those, remember, because... um, Luke tells us in that other chapter that we already read. So finally, Joanna. You say, Deborah, you've got five minutes. When are you going to get to Joanna? I'm proving Joanna is a disciple. <laughs> I thought this class was about Joanna. Okay, I'm going to read. I'm going to read it for time. Six. What's that? She's in there, okay. She's in there, I promise. She appears twice in Luke's Gospel and nowhere else in any of the other Gospels, but there are groups of women named in the other Gospels, and one of the really interesting things is to see, well, which ones are named and why. Why does Mark name some, Matthew name some, and Luke name others? Probably because those who were receiving the Gospels knew those women. And so he'd say they all knew Mary Magdalene and they all knew Mary, the mother of Jesus, but he's highlighting other women that they might have known. Oh, yeah, I know her. Don't you do that when you see something? I do it in the village newspaper. I'm like, yeah, I know them. They're from church. They're from church. They're from church. They're from church. Well, this is what the gospel writers are doing. Joanna must have been known to those who first read Luke's gospel. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also were with him some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Interesting, women who had been healed, who were following along with Jesus, on the road with Jesus, along with the 12, they were walking with him, and out of their expendable income, we're going to talk about that, they would then call up, provide so that all of the disciples had food to eat. The apostles, and Jesus specifically, had food to eat. They provided out of their means. Well, how could they have means in the first century if women couldn't hold property? Well, they were either unmarried, widowed, divorced. Um, they were all probably, if they had any kind of means, um, they were probably upper middle class. Some women in that day and age, their father would bequest um, a gift to them and that was something they could control even if they were married. Um, So what they're doing, the women, if you think about it, on the road would have had expendable income in a way that the men wouldn't have. Even men of higher status because if the men left, when Peter left his wife there in Capernaum, any income, wouldn't you imagine, needed to be left. He was already gone. He needed to leave whatever he had so that it could support his family in his absence. Um, When his labor couldn't continue to support his family, whatever they had had to be left there. Whereas the women, um, their families were probably, if they had families, they were probably already provided for from their husband's means, and then they had a little extra. And that is how the disciples ate. Um, They probably also, just like women, almost in every single culture, No matter what you do for a living, almost every woman wants to make sure you're well-fed, right? It's just a way we love other people. They were probably loving the disciples, caring for them in this way, not just buying their food, but probably cooking it and cleaning up after them too, probably, and keeping their clothes from wearing out. I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) So we hear them about them again at the resurrection. They've been with Jesus this whole way. They went down to Jerusalem with him. They were there for his death. And Luke tells us about their names here in his account of the resurrection. So they go to the tomb. They find him raised. And then Luke reminds us, who are these women who witnessed the death of Jesus and witnessed his resurrection? Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to the apostles to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. She witnessed, Joanna witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus. She was on the road with Jesus. She might have been continuously on the road with him. So here's what we know. She she probably, like 90% sure, she was an upper-class Galilean Jew upper-class, aristocratic. She had lots of money to burn, basically. Um, She was likely to have been married to a Nabataean official in Herod Antipas' court. Chusa is clearly a Nabataean name. The Nabataeans were um, from, they're Arabians from just below Herod Antipas' kingdom. And Herod, in his first marriage, had married someone, the daughter of that king. So it's very likely that Chusa came with the princess up when she married Herod and began to be a part of Herod's court that seemed to happen a lot in that day and age where there would be an entourage when there was this kind of political union a marriage that brought about a political union well being a steward in Herod's court meant that he had control over all of the finances of Herod's kingdom he was the one who collected all the taxes all of the money came through him and he was also very likely wealthy himself um, so the two of them they would have re- resided at Tiberius Herod's capital in Ga- near Galilee um, that was the capital of his kingdom and um, they would have then been very close to Jesus' ministry she might have gone to hear Jesus teach and there she might have received healing for something she was probably healing Healed, and she probably was sent out with the 72 in chapter 10. She's there with them in chapter 8. We see her again in chapter 24. It's likely she was on the road the whole time with maybe brief respite. Um, She witnessed his death and resurrection. Before I go into Romans 16, one thing is clear she would have suffered greatly to follow Jesus. As a woman of means and status, She would have had to take a huge hit in terms of her social capital to be able to follow Jesus. She might have even jeopardized her marriage if she was not widowed or divorced. Um, She had clearly encountered in Jesus something she had never encountered before, and she left everything to follow him, to follow him radically and to provide for him. One last thing to leave you with. She may or may not be the person mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Um, the very, in the Greek, you see, um, Paul is talking to the Romans, and he's saying, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. The RSV says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my fellow kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are men of note among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. The Greek transliterated almost exactly would say, Greek, Greek, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known among the apostles and they were in Christ before me. The likelihood is that these two, the name Junia, it never occurs in this masculine form Junia, which is what the RSV says. We have not found it anywhere else in any other ancient scripture. It was a Latinized name and the Latinized name Junia um, was very popular. And um, most of the Jews in Palestine had both a Jewish name and then also either a Greek name or a Latin name. And the court of Herod at Antipas was not Hellenized so much as it was Latinized. They were lackeys of Caesar and they wanted to be like Caesar in all they did. So if Joanna had a second name, it was likely to be a Latin name and not a Greek name. So we're, we're almost certain that this is a man and a woman And the language in the Greek would suggest primarily this interpretation of being among the apostles. This part, men, that's not in the Greek. It's just people. They are of note. Um, And the, the RSV hammers it out. What that means, we're not sure what that means, but what we know is that there are 12 apostles and they have a special and unique role. Paul, though, also calls himself an apostle because he has seen the risen Christ. Joanna had seen the risen Christ, and she proclaimed him. And so it would not not be strange for Paul to call her an apostle because of that. What we know is she was obeying Jesus. She followed him. Um, We, too, walk in Jesus' footsteps. And very often it involves great suffering, denial of self, taking up our cross and following him. But it also involves great joy, um, because from him alone can true joy in this life be found. Let's pray and then you can ask me some questions. Dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the disciples in the first century. Thank you for calling each one of us to to, um, put down our nets and follow you even as we take up our cross in this life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your cross, the way, the truth, and the life that you are as you have paved a way for us back into relationship with the father thank you lord for all it is that you have done and we ask cause us to walk this way to walk behind you to walk with you to imitate you by the power of your holy spirit in your name lord jesus christ amen